Well, again, good morning, and if you're joining us just for the first time in the Starting Point series, you could say this is the worst time to, to drop in, but it's also the best time, because this is the final week of our Starting Point series, and our, our series ends at the table. Um, what you need to know about this series is this, that we recognize that there are many different times in life where it's easy to kind of lose grasp of who God is, and it's easy to, that He can feel quite distant from you. In fact, just to start things off, I'm going to introduce this more so you don't feel lost. Um, as we look at the Lord's Supper today, there's just some things we need to recognize about ourselves first before we see God unlock some things for us. So I want to put a, a stat on the screen, and don't worry, it's not like you have to know where we're going yet. I just want to put this on the screen and show you the need for what we're talking about. If you look at people in church, kids in church, teens in church, 70% of them between the ages of 18 and 23 will give up on the local church. They'll stop going, they'll give up, and they'll just quit. And this is a statistic that makes me concerned as a pastor because the question is, well, why is this happening and what's going on in our country today, among our churches today? And it brings up a lot of questions. But here's what the Starting Point series is really all about. When you're raised as a child like I was in a Christian home, being brought to church and being told this is who God is, this is who Jesus is, as a child, when all this information is put on you, what do you do? You say, okay. And that's just the way it is. When information is given to you as a child, it's just accepted and received with this childlike faith, and we just say, okay, okay, okay. Now, somewhere between adolescence and adulthood, what starts to happen? Uh, we stop saying okay, and we start saying, well, wait a minute. I need to figure this out by myself. And I think for far too many years, just Christians in general, but um, even local churches, haven't done a good job of bridging that gap from childhood faith to adult faith. So in this series, what we've been doing is we've been talking about what it would look like if you are entering this whole discussion about God, the Bible, Jesus, Christianity, as an adult. What are some of the issues you would have questions about? What are the discussions you would like to have? And in this series, we've been going through them one by one by one. Not that we can cover all of them, but we hit some of the major ones. We've talked about what the Bible is. We've talked about the whole debate between creation and evolution, where we stand on that. We've talked about baptism, faith, all these other things. And so if, you, if, if the, any of those topics sound interesting, go online, listen to our messages online for free. Um, you can see the catalog of all of them. I can't summarize all of them for you right now. Fair enough. I don't think you didn't want me to. We only have a certain amount of time, speaking of which. Today what we're diving into is the Lord's Supper. And here's one more stat that'll help us see the importance of what this is. One more stat. As far as Christians today, they ask you, well, how often or do you feel close to God at least on a monthly basis? What this means is, do you feel like your relationship with God is good, that you're close to Him at least once a month? And Christians in general sent back the question, they gave their answer, and it looks like less than one in five Christians would agree with that. And again, that makes me ask, ask the question, well, what's going on with, with our churches today and with Christianity today? But instead of looking at these, these four people and saying what's wrong with them, I need to admit that I stand among them in certain times of my life. I know what it's like to bridge that gap from adolescence to adulthood, and all these questions start to come up. I know what it feels like when there are times in life where God feels distant. He seems uncooperative. 
seems like he's not there. And it's all too common for people today, yourselves included, that we would reach two conclusions. And here they are. We we reach the conclusion it feels like God's distant, or even worse, it feels like God is absent. Where are you? Now, if you're at the starting point of your faith, or if you're well along, chances are you can relate with this, right? There are times in life, seasons in life, where God feels distant, God feels absent. Now, with regard to this spiritual dryness, there are two things right up front that I want you to know. When it comes to spiritual dryness, this is our first fill-in for today, Jesus predicted your spiritual dryness. He looked ahead in your life and the life of every Christian, everyone who wants to follow him. He said there will be seasons and times of spiritual dryness. It happened to his own disciples for Pete's sake and John's sake and Mark's sake. All of them went through a period of spiritual dryness. But here's the good thing. Not only did Jesus predict it, but he did something about it. And he did that at the table. We're going to dig into the Lord's Supper today, and we're going to see what Jesus does in this supper to pull us out of spiritual dryness, but also to insulate us from it in the future. As we both look back at the past and look forward to the future, this is how God pulls us out of it. And to do that, we're going to look at Mark chapter 14 in just a moment. First of all, one interesting detail is that all four of the biographies of Jesus— Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all record details from this, this uh, supper that Jesus had with his disciples, this, this, uh, the Lord's Supper. And each one focuses on a little bit of a different detail, but they all tell this story because this was so revolutionary and so unexpected. And we're going to see why in just, just a minute. We're going to turn it in, into Mark chapter 14. And before, I'm teasing you so much here, before we actually open it up and look at it, Uh, One quick thing, this happens 24 hours before Jesus would die. Can you imagine that? A day before you die, and here you are with a room full of your closest friends. What do you tell them, and how do you prepare them? And on many times, Jesus had told parables to his disciples, and they were kind of dense. They didn't get it all the time. Sometimes he has told them flat out, guys, I'm going to suffer and die and rise and come back to life. And they were, okay, whatever. They didn't get it, didn't register. So here, 24 hours before his death, Jesus is sitting in this room with his disciples saying, how can I communicate what I'm about to do for them in a way that will make sense and in a way that they can remember? And so it's here that Jesus sets the stage at the table for pulling all of us out of spiritual dryness. It starts in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, and it sets the context for us. It says, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, so just a quick side note, so there was the Passover day, and then there was a week called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was like a week-long celebration. On that day, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So the quick, easy thing we learn from this is that the Lord's Supper was given in the context of, of the Passover supper. So here's what I'm thinking. If I'm at my starting point of faith and I want to understand the Lord's Supper, this communion thing that churches do, the thing I want to understand first is the Passover. What, what were they doing? What was going on? And here's the good news. The good, the good news is that you can understand the Passover in a sermon. 
The bad news is it's going to take seven minutes to do it. So I have to go through a lot of history. I actually had the 930 service time this, and one of the Krinhop kids in front, like, seven minutes, Pastor Matt. I'm like, thanks, dude. So it's going to take seven minutes to go through this, but there's going to be a brief pause in there because there's a really important element that I want to focus on. So I'm going to give you a quick history just to know what this Passover is, why they were doing it, and what it would have meant for Jesus to sit down with his disciples at the table to have this Passover meal. So we're going to start up here. And my apologies for the, whoever's doing PowerPoint today because this, it's going to mess up. We don't have that great of a computer, and there's a lot on this screen. It's going to be small. So the story starts with Noah. Okay, start your stopwatch. Noah. So he survives the flood with eight, uh, eight total in the ark. And after Noah, there was lots of baby making. You have to make lots of babies to repopulate the earth. So 10 generations after Noah, finally we start to get into, into some important history that God wants us to know. After 10 generations, we get to a guy named Abraham. What makes Abraham special is that God approached Abraham and he made a covenant, a promise, an oath to him. And the promise was this. This is important. God said, I'm going to turn you, Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Which means Abraham would have lots and lots and lots of descendants who could all say they could trace themselves back to Abraham. But more than that, more than just having lots of descendants, Abraham, one of his descendants, would be the fulfillment of what God promised Adam and Eve. One of them would be the Savior. So Abraham, if you were Abraham, you'd be like, hey, that's pretty cool, right? But Abraham's old, he has no kids, so he's like, God, I don't, how can I, how can I believe this? How can I really trust that this is going to happen? Because this is calling for a lot of faith here. And so God says, look, I'll make an oath with you so that you can know how serious I am. Okay, so if you're timing me, pause it for just a second. Because we need to talk about some oaths and the way they could do these in the Old Testament. This is just going to be crazy. So they had lots of creative ways to make oaths in the New Testament, or Old Testament, before Jesus came. Um, one of the oaths, which was pretty crazy, was if there's two guys making an oath, maybe to be, you know, have peace or to exchange some goods or whatever, these two guys would come together, they'd work out the details, and instead of shaking hands on it or instead of signing something, they would reach up with each other in the upper inner thigh, and it's with their hands in that position, they would make their oath to each other. And I'll be honest, I have no idea what significance that carries other than you're being very vulnerable with that other man in that moment and you'd want it over as quick as possible. That was one way they were crazy about oaths in the Old Testament. Thankfully, that's not what God did with Abraham. There's another way to make an oath in the Old Testament where basically you tell someone, I promise you I'm going to do this thing and to prove it to you, I'm not going to eat until it's done. What I promise you, I won't eat until I've done it. And this is called an oath of fasting. At least I call it an oath of fasting. Where you don't eat until what you've promised to do has been done. There's a third, uh, um, just what we'll talk about, there's a third oath that was given in the Old Testament or uh, an oath that was made. And this one was by far the craziest. If you were really serious about making an oath with someone, what you would do is you'd take several animals, you'd butcher them, You'd cut them in half, and then you'd spread apart the two sides, and you'd do this with all the animals so that you'd have a sidewalk of blood in the middle. So half of the animal here, half of the animal here, and you'd have a whole bunch of animals doing that. This is called the blood oath. And then once you had all the animals arranged, you would, you'd stand next to this guy you're making an oath with, and you would both walk through this sidewalk of blood 
through the animal. The, the symbolism is that you are saying, if I don't do what I've promised, may my life be like one of these animals. I will keep my oath even if it kills me. The blood oath was one of the most extreme oaths you could possibly make, and it was very visual, and it made a big impact on whoever took it. Now, Genesis chapter 15. It's an awesome chapter if you want to read it this week. In Genesis 15, Abraham says, God, can you give me an oath or something? I need something here. And God says, I'll make you an oath. God says, I want you to slaughter a bunch of animals, cut them in half, and spread them apart. Abraham's like, all right, I got this. I know what's going on. So he does it. He slaughters the animal, parts them, and there's this sidewalk of blood. And Abraham sits there, and he's waiting, 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 waiting. All day goes by. He's got to chase off some birds because they're starting to eat the animals that he had slaughtered. Finally, evening comes. Abraham is sitting there. He's so tired, so drained that he can't even move. And God appears right in front of him. And God alone walks through that sidewalk of blood, communicating something very clear to Abraham. Abraham, I will keep my oath to you, my promise to you, even if it kills me. If you're Abraham, you're thinking, well, God can't die. He can't shed blood. What does, it, what does this mean? And that was probably a good feeling for Abraham because God would rather die than break his promise to Abraham to turn him into a great nation and to bring a savior through one of his descendants. So this is like the highlight of the Old Testament. All the Jews, all the descendants of Abraham would point back to this moment and say, this is worth remembering. God made a blood oath with our forefather. All right, time back in. You can start timing me again. Oh my, we really messed up here. Can you go back one and forward one? Okay, good enough. So Abraham had the son named Isaac. Isaac's not that important. We'll focus on Isaac's son, who was called Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. So Jacob was the son of Isaac, and Jacob later in life, uh, took on this name Israel, which is why we often refer to the descendants of Abraham as the Israelites, or the sons of Israel, or the children of Israel. So their name comes from that. Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons. One of them you might remember from Bible history is Joseph. The, the other sons, Solom, his brother Solom as a slave to Egypt, and somehow through God's working, uh, Joseph rise to actually become second in command of Egypt, which was good news because in Canaan, where Jacob and his family lived, there was a famine. And they said, we can't survive here. So they all moved down to Egypt to live there in a place called Goshen, which was just awesome. It was the greatest place ever. And while they were in Goshen, they multiplied. They had lots and lots of babies. That's like a theme throughout the Bible, if you haven't told couldn't tell. They had lots and lots of babies there in Egypt, so much so that after 300, 400 years, the, the, the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, he started to get concerned. Maybe he was racist, maybe he was just realist. He didn't want the, this minority of people to overwhelm the general population. So he said, I'm going to turn these Israelites into slaves. So the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and even then, they just kept having babies, and they kept, you know, growing and growing and growing. So, so finally, Pharaoh said, that's it. No more male babies for you. If you have birth and it's a boy, it's to be killed. And then things started to get really bad with the Israelites. They were being forced to do things that were impossible, and they're crying out to God, crying out, crying out, God help us, God save us. But guess what? God was silent. 
They felt that God was absent. They felt that he was nowhere to be seen. He was more of a concept than a reality. So what does God do for those who are spiritually thirsty? He sends a guy named Moses. Does Moses go to Pharaoh and politely ask him to let the Israelites go, please? So Moses shows up, let the people go. Moses, or Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let the people go. That's my economy right there. You can't just take a million people out of my workforce and think everything will go well. So God says, all right, this is how we're going to go forward. We're going to have some plagues on Egypt. And at first there were nine plagues of increasing severity. It starts out with annoying things like gnats and frogs. It builds up to destructive things like hailstorms and even uh, plagues of boils where there would be painful boils on people and animals. It was getting worse and worse and worse, but still after nine plagues, what did Pharaoh say? No, you can't have them, can't let them go. Then there was this tenth plague, which was called the death of the firstborn. And, and God said to Moses, this is going to be the plague that breaks Pharaoh's back. When I send this plague, it will be more painful for him to keep you than for him to let you go. This will be the plague that forces him to let you go. So this, um, this plague would simply be the firstborn son of every family would die on a certain night. The firstborn son, and it even applied to livestock, the firstborn male would die on one specific night. And you might be wondering, well, did God shelter the Israelites from this? No, this applied to them too. Their firstborn sons would die also. But God created an umbrella. He created a back door where they could be protected from this. And it was called the Passover. God said, if you want to be spared from this, what you have to do is you have to take a one-year-old lamb, perfect, blameless lamb that looks healthy. You have to slaughter it. You have to paint its blood around your door to your house, then you have to roast the entire lamb, eat it, and go to bed. And you got to think in the moment what these Israelites were thinking. They're like, man, Moses has gone crazy. You know, why is he having us do this? What's the significance here? But the next morning, they understood the reality. It says the next morning, they got up and they could hear, hear crying and wailing and screaming and moaning from all the Egyptians around them, but in the camp of Israel, it was quiet. God had passed over them. Where blood had already been shed once, blood was not shed again. And this was so monumental, so instrumental in their escape from Egypt that God said th this was a great one-time thing, but this is going to be something that we repeat every year. It's going to be an annual cel celebration where you take a lamb, you sacrifice it, you eat it, and you tell the next generation what God did for you this day. All right, stopwatch, done. Seven minutes? Eight? Felt more like eight. Is anybody keeping time? 6.50, nice. That's not bad. The question that I have after all this, and if I was at the starting point of my faith, the question I would have is, why a lamb? Why would a lamb have the power to, to prevent this death, this judgment from falling on my house? And here's the quick answer. The lamb had no power to save them. And the lamb in itself didn't, didn't force God to, to pass over them 
and prevent this death from hitting their households. It, there was nothing about the lamb that was special. You see, this lamb, this Passover, was not the fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham. This wasn't the blood oath God made and said, all right, I'm done. I've, done, I've kept up on my end of the deal. This wasn't the fulfillment of that promise. This was simply a high point in it. And when God makes a covenant with someone and when he says, I'm going to turn you into a great nation, God alone has the right to dictate what blood is necessary to make it happen. This is a theme you see come up time and time again in the New Testament or Old Testament, and it's our second fill-in for today. God's covenant must be kept by blood that he provides. Look back to Abraham and Isaac. God said, sacrifice your son Isaac. In the end, God provided the blood. God provided the sacrifice. All because he's getting us ready for a moment that's unforgettable. A moment where Jesus, the Son of God, is in an upper room with his disciples celebrating a Passover meal and the significance of lamb becomes very, very clear. Before we jump into the rest of this, a couple things you need to know about the Passover meal. Um, it was like a, a, a very well-scripted service. Um, those at the table had speaking roles. They'd say them back and forth and back and forth. Either they would read them or they had them memorized. This Passover meal was very scripted because it told the story of God's uh, power which brought the Israelites out of Egypt. So it was very scripted. It was like telling a story. The other thing, you're going to like this about it, to celebrate the Passover meal, you had to drink four cups of wine. And these four cups corresponded to the four promises God had made the Israelites while they were still in Egypt. He said, I will, I will rescue you, I will redeem you, I will bring you out, I will, I will do all these things for you. And the reason I bring this up is because in the Bible, when Jesus celebrates this Passover meal with his disciples, we know that they had four cups at the meal, but the only one we hear about is the third one. None of the four gospel writers mention anything about this meal until after the supper, which is right in the middle of this Passover uh, celebration. It was after the meal. They were about to have the third cup. And by this time, they were kind of probably in their routine. They're thinking, all right, we know how the script goes. Let's go ahead and get through this. And it's in that moment where Jesus deviates from the script in such a way that would make their jaws drop onto the table, figuratively, figuratively. Here's what Jesus should have said if he was going by the script. I'm sorry. I did this in the last service too. I need to back up. So before they're doing this, just hold that thought. Jesus gives all the instructions. He's saying, guys, go there and make preparations. This is how it's going to work. I'm going to eat this Passover meal with my disciples. Here's one quick takeaway. When you look at the way Jesus celebrated this meal, when he was at the table, this was a family thing. His disciples were the closest family that were with him. And, and even as you look at the way the New Testament, the apostles go on to describe this meal, this is an intimate thing where you're, you're communicating a family, you're communicating an intimate oneness of your faith. So the reason I had to, I had to work that in there, if you're, if you're meeting with your growth groups this week, this is one of the questions you'll talk about. Well, what does this mean then? What are the implications if this is a celebration of our oneness of faith? of us being a family, how does that affect the way that we celebrate the meal either here or at a different church? So note that Jesus, for Jesus and for all the apostles, this was a very close, tight-knit thing. 
Then we go on. <clears throat> now, what you're waiting for. This is what Jesus should have said immediately after eating. So while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, take it. And this next part is what he should have said. This is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate in the wilderness. That's what the disciples were expecting to say, expecting him to say, because when he hands out the bread, this is like they're participating with the Israelites who are wandering in the desert. The Israelites in the desert had this, had this flat uh, bread made without yeast, and that's what they had at the Passover too. So it's like while they ate that food, they were in participation with, this, with their ancestors long, long ago. And so Jesus should have said, take and eat. Here's the bread that connects you to your ancestors long ago. But instead, he changes the script by saying this, take it, this is my body. And this was so apart from the script that every single one of them said, we have to tell this story. What he said is so earth-shattering that we have to record this. This is my body. In other words, he's saying, what I want you to do tonight is not find your connection with your ancestors long ago and connect with them in some way through bread. What I want you to do is take my body and connect with me. Connect with me. Because what I'm about to do will change the way God views you forever. Then he goes on. He took the cup, gave thanks, offered it to them, and they drank from it. This is the third cup at the supper. He said, this is my blood of the covenant. Um, often in this Passover meal, they would use wine as a symbolic thing of blood, about the, the blood that was shed through the plagues, about the blood that had to be shed to release the uh, Israelites from Egypt, the blood that was shed while they were slaves. There was all this symbolism with blood, but Jesus says, tonight's not about their blood. Tonight, it's about mine. Here's my blood. My blood is for a new covenant. And they, they, they had to stop and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What about the covenant God made with Abraham, the blood oath God made with him? And Jesus says, it's changing because I'm fulfilling that one and I'm making a new one not the bodies of animals put into it's my body which will be broken for you it's not the blood of animals that does anything it's my blood that will change the way god views you forever as jesus went through this supper he was completely changing the script he was completely changing the way things were working and from my starting point as i look at this maybe one question comes to my mind and that is where is the lamb on the table. This was a Passover meal. They would have had lamb on the table. Why didn't Jesus use that? Like instead of taking bread, he could take actual meat and say, this is my body given for you. You know, he could have made that connection, but instead he takes bread. Why is the lamb absent? Why of all the four people who recorded the life of Jesus, why do none of them mention a lamb? The silence is significant, and here's why. Villain number three, there was no mention of the lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. This was a monumental shift in the way these men viewed the Passover and they were referring to that, they were signifying that with what they told about it. 
the one that would grant them a true Passover, a true exodus, was not some animal on a table. The true exodus, the true Passover happens when Jesus makes a new covenant with you. This is not about us connecting ourselves to uh, ancestors centuries ago. This is about connecting to Jesus' body and blood. And by the way, when he describes this meal, when the apostles teach about this meal in, in years to come, they all make it very clear. This isn't just bread and wine that symbolize his, his body and blood. They all say, because of what he said, this is his body and his blood given for you. Given to make things right between you and God. When he put his body and his blood at the table, he said, I am making a new oath with you today. And he said, I'm going to make things right between you and God, not even if it kills me, but even though it kills me. Jesus made an oath that was, that was unforgettable for those men that night, and they all recorded about it. There's one other oath that Jesus makes. Um, he had not just made a blood oath, but he goes on to make another one. He says, I tell you the truth. In other words, I'm taking an oath. This is trustworthy. He says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. And you could put a period right there and say, this makes complete sense in 24 hours. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine because he's going to die. But this next section baffled the disciples for the next several days. He said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew. There's going to be a fresh batch of it in the kingdom of heaven. And 24 hours from then, the disciples must have said, what in the world was he talking about? This body, this blood, it's, he's dead. How can he drink again? But three days later, it changed. He came back to life, and he had made them a promise. I'm not going to drink this again until I drink it anew. He said to them, I'm going to come back. He was telling them what to expect. And Matthew, as he records this, he adds an important, um, it's just two words. He adds two important words. In Matthew's account, he says, when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. I'll not drink this until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus was taking an oath of fasting. He said, I promise you, I will not drink this again until I drink it with you. And also on that night, John records, Jesus told him all sorts of, of pictures. He said, that heaven is like a, a mansion with many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to bring you with me. And Jesus also describes heaven as this great banquet where it's a continual feast, a continual celebration. And here's the thought I want to leave you with. When Jesus gave this meal with, to his disciples, he was eagerly expecting the next one, just like he does with you. Each time you're at the table and you're receiving his body and blood, it should do two things. It should point you backwards to what Jesus has done through his blood, but it also points you forward. It's this, me it's this meal of expectation where Jesus is saying, I've got a great banquet for you, but I'm not going to touch it until you get here. 
to send you, I know that, um, as we close here, I know that the stuff that we went through today, there's, there's a lot of teaching, a lot of affecting or preaching to your heads and a lot of in, uh, knowledge and stuff like that. So I want to close this with two simple statements that you can take with you either today or into the future. Just as you think of this meal, what are some things that should, that should draw our attention? And this last fill-in will hopefully do that for you. Six words to remember at the table, given for you, which means we look back, we see what Jesus sacrificed in order to get us close to God. And then, looking forward, anew with you. This is a meal of expectation that points us forward. Now, as we close out our starting point series, one thing I acknowledge is that no two people are in the same place with regard to their walk of faith. Some of you may be at the starting point. Some of you may think, well, I'm probably nearing the conclusion of this earthly faith that I've started. We're all in different places. But what I know for sure is that all of us go through times where God feels distant and times when God feels absent. We go through seasons of intense spiritual dryness where we lack conviction about the things we want to have the most. We go through times where God seems more like a concept than a reality. Jesus predicted those times would come, and at the table, he provided you the relief from it. He shows you in no uncertain terms the very body and blood which bought your forgiveness with God. When at the table, he provides you with tangible proof that he's got a place waiting for you. So I pray that what you found at the table today and in coming in days forward will get you through your starting point and beyond. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I praise you and thank you for the tremendous sacrifice that you made for me and for all the people listening to this message. Even on the eve of your death, as you stared death in, in the face, you took the time to sit down with your disciples, to not just share with them a parable or to share a sermon, but you shared with them an intimate meal in which you told them the implications of what was about to happen. Like the disciples, even though this is a high point for us, there will be times of spiritual dryness ahead for each of us. Maybe even that moment is right now. But I pray that through this meal, through the simple both reminder of what you've done and through the, the immediate presence of Christ's body and blood, that you would give us a faith and hope and joy, even in the midst of our dryness. Use this meal as a reminder and as your means to bring us out of dryness and to bring us one step closer in the life you would have us live for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name as we also join in the prayer he taught.